0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to the first episode of Intelligence Squared in 2021. We're starting this year with a foreign policy episode and it features a guest who may be familiar to some of you. It's Madawi al-Rashid, the Saudi dissident professor and writer who took part in our big debate last year on whether the West should cut ties with Saudi Arabia. Well, this time she came back to our online subscription service Intelligence Square Plus and spoke to the BBC's Middle East editor Jeremy Bowen about her new book, The Sun King reform and repression in Saudi Arabia. It's a really fascinating conversation that looks at how the country has changed and stayed the same since the reign of Mohammed bin Salman. And if you do enjoy it, you can find
2: a link for the book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I've really been looking forward to this session because there's actually there's a, a lot to talk about. And we have the best person possible to talk about Saudi Arabia Madawi al-Rashid. She is one of the foremost authorities on the country, visiting professor, professor of social anthropology at the LSE, Middle East Centre. She's written a number of excellent books about Saudi Arabia, one about the legacy of King Salman, of course, the current king. But now we have this one. Here it is. I'll wave it again, in case you didn't catch it when Connor waved it. The Sun King, Reform and Repression in Saudi Arabia, published by Hearst. As you can see from my notes in it, my post-it notes in I have read this very thoroughly, learnt a lot, enjoyed it. And you know, for a foreign journalist like myself, Saudi Arabia, to be honest with you, has always been a bit of a hard nut to crack. First of all, it's quite hard to work there. Second of all, a lot of what passes for seemingly well-informed comment I've learned over the years is quite often based on a bit of gossip and speculation. Now, One person who wrote with a great deal of authority, of course, was the late Jamal Khashoggi. Now, his appalling murder broke the spell that had been painfully woven, painstakingly woven, I should say, around Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, known for short, of course, as MBS. We're going to get on, I'm sure, to that notorious killing and the effect of it. But Madawi, uh, first of all, let's start with begin at the beginning? I mean, did people see him coming? Uh,
3: Thank you, Jeremy. Um, And thank you, Intelligence Square, for this session. It wasn't um, inevitable that Mohammed bin Salman will rise to become the crown prince in such a a short time, given his age and his lack of experience. But I think to understand why he came to power, we have to look at the Arab uprising in uh, Uh, 2011, when uh, quite a lot of dictators uh, looked as if they are on their way out. And Saudi Arabia did have some kind of agitations, uh, demonstrations, and the tide was inevitably going to reach Saudi Arabia, because the demands of the uh, demonstrators in Cairo, in Bahrain, in North Africa, in Yemen, uh, were exactly the same in Saudi Arabia. But I think at that moment, uh, a decision was taken to promote a young prince who would start social liberalization, open up Saudi Arabia socially and economically but keeping the political system intact as it is as an absolute monarchy so the choice was so obvious at the time that king salman when he became king in 2015 he started promoting his one of his youngest sons and he was seen as the new face of saudi arabia a so-called modern creative entrepreneurial and uh, uh, connected to the rest of the world through pop culture, entertainment, and also global capital and investment. So Mohammed bin Salman was promoted in order to mitigate against the tide of the Arab uprisings reaching Saudi Arabia.
2: Because one of the features, is it not, in the in the, the entire region, is that there's a very young population, a young population that suffers from a lot of unemployment. So the the, the the idea then was to connect with these people, is that correct?
3: Yes, absolutely. But age is a construct, really, and we give it meaning. So um, I remember Western journalists talking about the aging Saudi monarchs, one dying, followed and succeeded by another one, equally old and on the, on the way out. And so the prediction was actually rife that we will have a young Western-educated prince to become the future king of Saudi Arabia. But of course, that didn't happen in both situations. We do have a young prince, but he wasn't Western-educated. And so people assume that there is value uh, to being young, or value to being Western educated, and therefore, without understanding the the politics of the Saudi royal family, it is impossible to understand why Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, be, became so important and amassed so much powers in such a short time.
2: Well, the politics of that family are rather complicated, and they have been the dom- well among the dominant forces. Since the 18th century, of course, in in Saudi Arabia, and the dominant force since, well, for most of the last hundred years, I suppose. Just try and could you give us for those of us, um, I would include myself in that, of course, who sometimes get a bit confused by the tangled family trees and uh, the web of power, the varying and ebbing and flowing web of power in Saudi Arabia. Could you sum up for us what it is we really need to know about Saudi politics that produced this, uh, you know, remarkable man?
3: Yes, well, there are two phases to understand the royal family or royal politics. After the founder of the kingdom, uh, King Abdulaziz ibn Saud died in 1952, he wanted the succession to stay within his own sons which means that if a king dies it is his son who be- uh, his brother sorry who becomes king and this is unlike what europe had experienced in its mon- various monarchies so the succession went from one son of the founder to his brother
2: so hor- horizontally
3: a horizontal succession And he had quite a lot of sons, I mean, estimated to be around 45. But we get to the 1990s, and after that, the royal family was running out of eligible young brothers of the king. And King Abdullah saw the death of two members of the royal family, very senior one, his crown prince, and Minister of Defence, who was the Deputy Crown Prince, King Sultan and nayef And at that point, it became clear that when Salman becomes king, there won't be any brothers to succeed him or eligible brothers. They were old, the existing ones, or sidelined. So it was time to think about how the succession could move from the horizontal line to the vertical line. So King Salman sacked his uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, who was the minister of interior and the crown prince, and promoted his own son as crown prince. But he is yet to appoint a deputy crown prince, which is the tradition in Saudi Arabia. And possibly because Mohammed bin Salman is young, the king doesn't feel... uh, that uh, uh, there will be a power vacuum should something happens to him. And he is probably unlikely to to die, you know, as, as the previous crown princes did.
2: He has been making, right from the outset, a lot of waves. He really hit the ground running, showing, you know, tremendous energy. There was the war, not necessarily constructive energy, there was the war in Yemen. That's certainly when I first became aware of this, this man and his name, when all that started. And then everything that's happened ever since, of course. And there was that November 2017, the extraordinary affair in the Ritz-Carlton uh, in Riyadh, where he he walled up a couple of hundred prominent officials and members of the, the, the royal family. And uh, essentially, they had to buy their way out of that. What was the real story behind that? What was his motivation? Was he making a point? Was he trying to show who's boss? Or was it about knocking corruption and trying to recoup money that some of the notoriously corrupt people in that country had uh, stolen?
3: Well, it's absolutely not about corruption. The problem that Mohammed bin Salman, because of his young age and because of excluding not only his own elder brother, but other cousins who are more eligible and who had experience in government like Mohammed bin Nayef, he wanted to prove himself and prove that he is tough. So uh, he became minister of defense, crown prince, head of the Economic Council. And uh, uh, given the old age of his father, he was actually running the show. But this doesn't mean that he had the consensus of the Saudi royal family behind him. Before King Salman, the the state was run like multiple fiefdoms, and each senior prince has his own ministry. So Prince Naif, the crown prince, had the ministry of interior. Prince Sultan had the ministry of defense. And these are the main ministries. And they were almost like autonomous, but they came together and they did not challenge their brother. However, when Mohammed bin Salman was promoted in 2017, there was no consensus of the royal family. And a lot of members of that family thought that, uh, why Mohammed bin Salman when there are eligible uh, princes who had more experience than him? So he is living in fear uh, for his life, and he is worried about coups by members of the royal family. And as such, he managed to have almost all the king, the sons of King Abdullah, uh, Mitab and the others, in the Ritz-Carlton confiscated their assets because he was worried about his future in a family that has not given him the full support and the consensus. So, by promoting Mohammed bin Salman, the king, King Salman has sidelined so many other princes. And corruption is a good cause. So uh, we see. I mean, the reason why I argue in the book that it is, this is not about corruption is because it was selective. It was selective in the sense that he cherry picked some princes who might pose a threat and put them in in, in the Ritz-Carlton. And the, the detention campaign against members of his own family continued. I mean, the last we heard about such detention was just like uh, seven, eight months ago. And he will continue to do this uh, in the future simply because he doesn't have that consensus That is so important to, to have the family behind you. And at the moment, they're all gone silent.
2: For the moment, do you think that might last? There is, uh, it's not unknown for a Saudi king to be removed from power in the past. uh, Do you think that he might one day just simply run out of his nine lives?
3: Well, uh, historically, there has been cases of Saudi kings removed from power. The last one, I don't want to go into the 19th century and what happened then. But in in the 1960s, uh, King Saud was deposed, forced to uh, leave the country, and he died uh, abroad uh, because uh, Faisal, his crown prince, challenged him and kicked him out. Uh, And then in 1975, King Faisal himself was assassinated, by his nephew in the palace. So it is not unlikely or unimaginable that we'll have this kind of situation, especially after King Salman dies. As king Salman at the moment gives him a, a legitimacy umbrella. He's like the untouchable now because he's the, the bright or so-called reformer, of, uh, the sun king. But after Salman dies, who knows?
2: There was an interesting story in The Guardian the other day about uh, the former Crown Prince, um, Mohammed bin Nayef, who's been, well, no one's quite sure, but he appears to be under house arrest and has been for months on end. And uh, for those who didn't see the story, it was essentially saying that there was a plot on social media accusing him, his lawyers said this, accusing him of uh, plotting a coup, perhaps an alliance with Joe Biden. And don't forget, of course, that is a has is been a big friend of... Of President Trump and also of the first son-in-law Jared Kushner. So the quote was that interested me was it said that uh, this the social media activity was coming from inside Saudi Arabia and quote forty percent of the tweets apparently show bot-like behavior. Now MBS himself. And his allies have quite adeptly used social media, haven't they, to push their their points? Do you think that is a continuation of it of that of that tendency?
3: Yes, when um, Mohammed bin Nayef was um, uh, detained um, almost like ten months ago, there were uh, rumors on Twitter, also by bots and you know uh, the the uh, infamous uh, Twitter farm outside Riyadh, um, that he was on drugs. And then now they think that uh, with the change in the American administration, maybe Mohammed bin Naif will be revived. And brought back simply because Mohammed bin Nayef was the choice of many Western governments, including Britain, because of his work uh, as uh, in the war on terror, and uh, he uh, cooperated and provided information, shared uh, information on terrorism with Western intelligence services. So, it, 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 actually, before he was deposed, only a week before he was deposed, he was given one of the most prestigious CIA. Uh, 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 medals for his uh, contribution to the war on terror, but then suddenly Mohammed bin Salman uh, uh, became the face of Saudi Arabia and uh, Mohammed bin Nayef sunk into uh, oblivion. So I'm not surprised that these tweets are, are circulating at the moment. But Mohammed bin Naif or Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, they both have a record of repression. Mohammed bin Naif was uh, 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 so uh, hated by many people in Saudi Arabia because he actually started the, in, the police state and consolidated the surveillance and the technology that makes every Saudi citizen, very, very vulnerable. And uh, it, it is ironic that the, the work that Mohammed bin Nayef had done has benefited his successor, which is Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and he wasn't able to, to uh, actually uh, benefit from all that uh, spying and surveillance that he, he put in place.
2: We can't talk about Saudi Arabia without talking about religion. and We can't talk about... Uh religion in Saudi Arabia without talking about the uh, Wahhabi version of Islam and the alliance between the Al Saud family and that particular tendency in religion that goes back until the middle of the 18th century is there a sense now though that that Mohammed bin Salman is is trying to do things a bit differently that he is not trying to be as reliant on that alliance with the Wahhabi rubber stamp as his predecessors might have been.
3: Yes, as you mentioned, the Wahhabi tradition was instrumental in, in the foundation of the state. But Mohammed bin Salman wants to reverse that. He is yet to succeed simply because he still needs the Wahhabis. So to just give you examples, uh, he told The Guardian uh, to mention his interview when he said that he wants to start a moderate Islam in Saudi Arabia. And uh, moderate Islam involves sort of curbing the powers of the religious scholars, surveying uh, uh, greater surveillance of mosques, etc., and also suppressing the Islamists of all shades and colours. But uh, when he needs the Wahhabis, uh, he draws on their help. To just give you an example, in the war uh, on Yemen, which started in 2015, uh, King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman relied on the Wahhabi clerics to go to the battleground and, and encourage the soldiers to launch this war because they called it jihad against the infidels. And the infidels in this particular case were the Yemeni Zaydis who belong to a different branch of Islam uh, that the Wahhabis hate and detest and think that they are not real Muslims. So that that sort of sectarian discourse, which is uh, uh, integrated in Wahhabi doctrine, is promoted in the context of the war on Yemen. If, for example, Saudis want to take any civil resistance, if they want to demonstrate or express an opinion or go and strike, then the the, the the king and his son will use the Wahhabi fatwas, which are religious decrees, to prohibit. Uh, demonstrations because they can argue that it is against Islam uh, and you are committing blasphemy against God if you demonstrate. And therefore, at the moment, the Wahhabi tradition is dormant, but it can be reactivated on demand. When King Salman or his son Muhammad bin Salman want to use it, it's out there. They can quickly sort of uh, ignite its zeal and uh, and uh, excesses.
2: And that's an alliance which has worked for them for two hundred, well, more than 250 years.
3: It, absolutely. But at the moment, Mohammed bin Salman probably thinks that they've exhausted the Islamic legitimacy of the regime because, remember, the, the Saudi kings are the custodians of the two holy mosques and therefore they claim that they are leaders of the Sunni Muslim world or of Muslims in general. But that had been exhausted and reached a dead end with the 9-11 event. And since then, we see uh, the promotion of nationalism as an alternative to religious nationalism. So Mohammed bin Salman adopted the slogans, ironically, that uh, Trump had, had promoted. Saudi Arabia is great or make Saudi Arabia great or Saudi Arabia is for Saudis. And all these kind of slogans are trying to create a new national consciousness to, to promote people, to push them, to, to mobilize them. But this nationalism is centered on loyalty to, the, to Mohammed bin Salman. And it's not really a loyalty to the nation. It's loyalty to the future king. And also it has its own contradictions and problems like all nationalisms in the world.
2: You just mentioned, of course, President Trump in his, um, you know, final hours, more or less, or days. So most people think, anyway, in the White House. What is your analysis of the the changes that have happened in the Gulf in the last few months, with the normalisation agreements with the uh, between the Emiratis and Israel, Bahrain as well, Sudanese having their arms somewhat twisted to uh, to join the party. Where exactly is Saudi Arabia on that? There was that meeting quite recently between Netanyahu and uh, MBS. And, uh, you know, one of the, the analysis that one reads quite a bit is simply that while King Salman is still there, he can't give up the, the, Arab, the Saudi-authored Arab peace plan, which is, of course, that um, normalization with Israel is fine as long as it follows independence for the Palestinians. But once the old man's gone, well, who knows?
3: Yes, well, at the moment, I think it's the king's dilemma. King Salman is damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Uh, so he can't, he, he has to go through a cost benefit analysis and see what he's getting out of, of this. And in a way, you know, Trump was his friend and the fr- uh, uh, Jared Kushner was a friend of Mohammed bin Salman and they all worked together. But Saudi-Israeli relations date back to the 1960s and the Saudis are actually, the Saudi leadership just can't go public with these relations and they can't go uh, uh, along the, the, the path of the United Arab Emirates or Bahrain or even Sudan. Uh, simply because they worry about the opinion of the of the people. Uh, they would lose, actually, the last sort of brick in their sort of uh, legitimacy uh, uh, narrative. They can't uh, rule without this sort of, you know, uh, uh, claim that they uh, uh, work on behalf of Muslims, given that they are the custodians of Mecca and Medina. But King Salman decided to wait and see. And it's interesting that only this week there was news that Netanyahu came to Saudi Arabia for a very quick meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, and obviously they denied it, although the news came in the Israeli press. But... Immediately, within like a week, Prince Turki al-Faisal, who was ambassador in London and also the ex-director of the intelligence services, went to a conference in Bahrain, S. And he sort of had this diatribe about Israel. And he was actually talking to his domestic audience, not to the people in the conference. He wanted to reassure them on behalf of the king and his son that Saudi Arabia is committed to the rights of Palestinians. But the economic uh, intelligence and military cooperation between the two countries, Saudi Arabia and Israel, had had developed and there's a whole sort of literature on, on the, these clandestine relations.
2: We are nearly running out of time on our 30 minutes before we open this up more order questions. But a couple more things. So first off, uh, how important in all this is the shared antipathy that the Israelis and the Saudis have to Iran?
3: This is the the common cause and uh, the worrying thing is that they are both not restrained uh, and they may sort of launch a certain attack that would bring the whole region in, in into war. I think Mohammed bin Salman uh, has overestimated his military capabilities uh, despite, I mean, uh, um, in a country like Yemen. The war is five years old in Yemen and until now, uh, recently, the Houthi missiles reach Saudi territory and they are intercepted. Sometimes they hit a wrong target. And we have seen how the uh, the oil fields are also attacked uh, regularly throughout these five years. One attack was so serious That it stopped the oil production and export. So, uh, in order, they are both Netanyahu and uh, Mohammed bin Salman might be foolish to launch an attack that would bring the whole region into more war and devastation.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the loving that happened in the early years of uh, Mohammed bin Salman's tenure as, as crown prince. There was that uh, celebrated trip to the United States, the gushing pieces about this great bearer of a man who might be king of Saudi Arabia into the next century, etc, etc, etc. Then, of course, things changed greatly after the uh, the murder of Khashoggi in the Consulate in Istanbul. Uh, The celebrated American columnist Tom Friedman, I think, gave him a very, very uh, favorable reception when he burst onto the scene. When MBS did, what do you make of that whole, the whole mechanism, the love-in, then followed by the the sort of the the realization when the curtain was drawn back on that terrible killing? And what does that say to you as well about Western observers and would-be interpreters? of what's, what's going on?
3: Yes, I think uh, Thomas Friedman and many others in respectable US and UK media fell under the spell of Mohammed bin Salman. It was almost like wishful thinking that he would be this imposing young man, uh, very energetic, who works until like 3 a.m. in the morning and plays video games. I mean, there was this sensational uh, sort of reporting on Saudi Arabia. And uh, I think it it goes back earlier than journalism. It goes back to how many uh, travellers and Western writers, glorified. glorified Ibn Saud, the founder of the kingdom, although he was in alliance with the most radical religious groups that had emerged in the Arab world for centuries. But I do remember writing, uh, reading British travellers glorifying this man who came from the desert. There is that kind of Orientalism. Tall.
2: It was the size too they liked, didn't they? Just like with MBS.
3: He was a tall man, imposing,
2: not like those other little men, I suppose they meant.
3: Yes. So unfortunately, Western media fell under the spell and thought that, you know, reform in Saudi Arabia is all about allowing women to drive, going to theatre, watching football matches, inviting pop stars to the country, having boxing matches where women could actually attend. But none of those Western journalists ask the big question, the taboo question. Is there any sign of political reform? Uh, Is there a sign of having a representative government in Saudi Arabia? There were no signs of any kind of elections uh, that might take place and give the people a voice. And only when Jamal Khashoggi was uh, murdered on the 2nd of October uh, 2018, that, you know, Thomas Friedman and the others thought that, oh, we got it wrong. It is time now to reconsider our assessment. This is a brutal murder of one of us and Jamal Khashoggi was a journalist.
2: Mm-hmm. You mentioned changes to those restrictions on on women, you know, the f- most celebrated of course, the prohibition on driving, and I have there not been a few reforms to the guardianship system. But do you think that despite the fact that, of course, at the same time as he was allowing some more freedoms, he was putting female protesters, feminists in jail. Do you think that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has made life better in any sense for women in Saudi Arabia?
3: Some women are enjoying the right to drive. And and this uh, professional women who have to go to their jobs, teachers, uh, nurses, doctors, etc., but this comes at a very, very high price. The restriction on freedom of expression, a restriction on women's ability to represent themselves, uh, are still in place. Until the present day, a, a Saudi woman cannot marry without the authorization or the permission of her guardian. So in marriage, women are not regarded as adults. Um, they need to be represented and they have to seek permission to get married. So yes, there are certain changes that had affected women in a positive uh, way. But I think you can't talk about this kind of social liberalisation without real rights, without real political right, without uh, the idea of equal citizenship. And we are still far behind uh, other countries in the region, let alone in, in the world. So yes, there is reform, but there is heavy-handed repression, At the same time, Lujain al-Hudloul, who is a feminist, young 30-year-old activist who campaigned for the right to drive and got arrested and put in prison in 2014. But she's still in prison now. Um, And when Mohammed bin Salman came to power, uh, she she was summoned to prison and she is now transferred to a court that deals with terrorism. And she is just an educated woman who... Campaign. But it is not surprising that Mohammed bin Salman picked those women and put them in prison because the feminist movement in Saudi Arabia had surpassed all schisms within society, whether they are regional, ideological. Uh, or even uh, sectarian. So women's rights united so many regions, so many tribal groups, and this is why Mohammed bin Salman feared this rising vocal feminist movement. He prefers regions and groups to work within their own sect, within their own community, but a national opposition is what he actually fears.
2: Right, we have got a variety of questions coming in, as a matter of fact. So let's uh, start dealing with a couple of those. Can you, this is from uh, Anil Nanda, could you talk a little bit about MBS and his relationship with the United Arab Emirates? Who is the senior partner and how will the election of Joe Biden change this?
3: Yeah, and it is a very, very uh, opaque relationship. But I think Mohammed bin Salman sees the this United- is,
2: This is the relationship with MBZ the, yes,
3: MBZ, the ruler,
2: the effective ruler of that, of that country.
3: Um, he is impressed by Dubai rather than the whole of the UAE. And he thought that he could turn Saudi Arabia into another uh, UAE on a, a much bigger scale. His rela- Obviously, like all these kind of uh, uh, personalized political relations, it's very difficult to know what goes on. But uh, it is obvious that uh, the UAE, early on, wanted to play a role bigger than its size and even its wealth. And they saw the threat of Islamism in the region as undermining their success story or the so-called success story of Dubai. And... Uh, I think the decision was reached in, the U, in Abu Dhabi, the capital, that in order to defeat Islamism, you really need to defeat it in its own country of origin, and that is Saudi Arabia. So MBZ is very keen on silencing all Islamist voices and becoming the policeman of the Gulf. And he, he has played sort of the guiding elder to Mohammed bin Salman uh, so far. But we shall see, like all these kind of personalised relations, they are not based on some kind of solid institutional connections. And they come and go depending on personalities in, in, in power.
2: And uh, Anil asks say, a follow up. Did the UAE, UAE play a role in the appointment of MBS? There was apparently an article in the New York Times, which I clearly missed, suggesting there was a very strong link on that.
3: It, it, it I mean, MBZ, through his ambassador in Washington, he built uh, uh, many connections. And he reminds me, al his ambassador, reminds me of Bender bin Sultan, if you remember, Jeremy, in the 1990s and the Gulf yeah, War, yeah. And, uh, and even up to nine eleven. So he had these personalised Uh, relations with the Bush family, with the oil uh, corporations... And uh, I think, after the departure of Muhammad, uh, of Bender bin Sultan, the Saudi ambassador, the UAE wanted to fill that vacuum and play the role and sort of be the, the sounding board of the American administration and it coincided with Trump coming to power, who was very much interested in the transactional foreign policy that you know if you buy my arms or arms from my country, i 'm happy to support you and And that went on, and Mohammed bin uh, Salman benefited from that kind of context.
2: On the subject of arms, this question from me actually. Uh, Do you think the, uh, well, we hear a lot in this country, but the British and the Americans, clearly we sell vast amounts of uh, weaponry, sophisticated weaponry, to Saudi Arabia, and there is that intelligence relationship. And if you talk to members of the Conservative government here, for example, about our relations with Saudi Arabia, they'll say, well, yes, that we have put pressure on them on some issues, because we're not that happy with some of the things they've been doing, like bombing civilians in Yemen, with planes we sold them and maintain. But you know, the relationship is very important economically. And as well as that, it's deeply rooted in our common history, we go back a long way. And as well as that, of course, there's that intelligence relationship and believe you me is what they say. The Saudis have helped us no end in dealing with extremism in our own country.
3: Well, I mean, this is the, uh, the discourse of the successive British governments um, and also in the United States. But it, it, I think in terms of cost benefit, there had been a lot of studies on British relations with Saudi Arabia and the arms sales. And it is actually blown out of proportion. Yes, there are jobs, but they're not the only jobs in the country. And Britain could have a a foreign policy. Uh, with a country like Saudi Arabia and upholding its values. And it doesn't mean that you sell them these planes that are used to bomb Yemen. You you make that relationship conditional on these uh, regimes and these dictatorships respecting the basic rights of their citizens and their neighbors. But um, I think Britain likes the idea uh, of having this so, uh, yet another special relationship with Saudi Arabia because it makes it project its power abroad. It makes it feel better that they have this really special in inverted commas, with the Saudis. But, I mean, since the Second World War, this has been the dilemma of Britain uh, as uh, the United States displaced Britain in terms of having the special relationship with, with Saudi Arabia. And, and the British logic is that if we don't Saudi sell Saudi Arabia arms, then the French would. And this is the kind of weapons market that is global, uh, backed by powerful governments, and and they're all searching for new opportunities and markets. Unfortunately, um, you know, uh, uh, without a vigorous control over arms sales, we, we are going to continue pumping these regimes with weapons that are used either against their own people or against their neighbours. And you accelerate the chances of uh, uh, war. As we have seen, the Yemen war was the first war that the Saudis uh, used to to test their military capabilities. They've never fought a war on, on their own. Their army has never fought a war on its own since the creation of the state. The Gulf War in 1990 uh, was fought with 500,000 foreign soldiers, mainly Americans. And therefore, um, they wanted to test their military capabilities and, and, and started a war in Yemen that, that precipitated a humanitarian crisis that is still on, ongoing.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the the, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Some men have been put on trial. Uh, what is likely to happen to them? MBS himself has denied that he had anything to do with it. Though I think Trump isn't. Trump said to Woodward that I saved that guy's ass on this particular subject. So, uh, if they took the orders of the Crown Prince, if course, I, I can't prove it, but all the circumstantial evidence seems to suggest that. The question is: Will they take the fall for him? Will how does it work? Will their families have been given money to buy their silence? Will they be discreetly ushered out of jail in a year or two?
3: Yes. Well, it's an opaque judiciary in Saudi Arabia. We um, don't know much about uh, the process, the procedure and they needed to have scapegoats to silence the loud voices around the world that condemned this this uh, crime and the the magnitude of the crime makes one believe with certainty that it could not have happened without some serious orders from above and the details of it at the time were horrific and I document it in the book because I relied on on the accounts of the woman who was with Khashoggi just standing outside his, his fiancée. And uh, the Saudis would not allow an independent investigation. They refused from day one, and they regarded that as an infringement on their sovereignty. But sovereignty or no sovereignty, you commit a crime abroad On the premises of your consulate, I think the regime has gone too far in in that particular. uh, uh, uh,
2: That does appear. Yeah, that very much does appear to be the consensus, though, of course, Western countries certainly seem quite prepared to forgive and forget as soon as they they can. Interesting question here from the audience. Do you think that Saudi Arabia could ever be a democracy? What would need to happen?
3: Well, it, it can be a democracy. There's nothing that stops a country from being a democracy. You need two, two conditions. You need the people to mobilize for democracy inside the country. And you need an international context that doesn't block the development of democracy, like what happened in, in Egypt, for example, in 2011, when uh, people did demonstrate and did uh, uh, pay a high price, but then there were counter-revolutionary forces in the region, assisted by some uh, Western governments, that derailed that drive towards democracy. And Saudi Arabia is not uh, an exceptional case. There are people calling for democracy. We do have now a diaspora that uh, consists of uh, young men and women who had left uh, the reforms and the the paradise of Mohammed bin Salman, and they're stranded in uh, around the globe, from Canada to the United States, Britain, Australia, Europe, and any and other countries. And w- one thing that actually encouraged me to write this book is to. Uh, ask a question, if Mohammed bin Salman is such a great reformer, why are those Saudis leaving the country and becoming exiles and asylum seekers abroad? Uh, Women, uh, if he's promoting and empowering women, why have we got runaway girls? And this is a new phenomenon. Runaway girls, young girls who leave the country without the permission of their guardians, uh, they escape, and once they arrive in international airports around the world, they see Asylum. So, if if driving is the dream of every Saudi woman, why do these young women leave the country when driving becomes legal? So, it's it's a very very mixed situation, and democracy is not beyond the the horizon of many Saudis. They can participate in nor in elections. They understand the principles of democracy.
2: Now, your family and you yourself, of course, have been outside Saudi Arabia quite a long time, a long, you know, much preceding Mohammed bin Salman. Tell us what your family's story was.
3: Well, it's a long story, but uh, to sum well, we've
2: it up... We've got about five minutes, so go on.
3: Right, <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's your, I'm born into a family that had a history in, in the country as local rulers of part of what is now Saudi Arabia. And they had battles uh, and they lost uh, the war to the, uh, the Al Saud. But also they, they are interconnected through a series of marriages with the Al Saud because they're part of this Arabian sort of nobility. And in my situation, I sort of became an exile as a teenager. I didn't choose to be an exile. It's because of the position of, of uh, my father, my uncle and, and the whole family history. So I left uh, in, in Saudi Arabia in 75, then returned briefly. And then uh, at the end, I came to Britain to study and decided to stay and uh, I I chose a career that can never flourish in a dictatorship. You cannot write history or social science in a country like Saudi Arabia if you, if you want to maintain your ability to have critical thinking. And it is impossible. Uh, all my books are banned in Saudi Arabia. In fact, Amnesty International reported that one of the charges against a group of civil society activists when they went to court in uh, Saudi Arabia that they had my books and articles stored on their computer. So if a history book or definitely the Sun King will not be allowed in Saudi Arabia, it will be censored. But if you can't write with freedom, if you can't defend human rights, if you can't engage in conversation with feminists, Islamists, nationalists, if you can't do all these things, you can't really become an academic in Saudi Arabia unless you become a loyalist academic. And I chose not not to go down that path because I I couldn't be a a loyalist in a regime that deprives me of my basic freedom of speech.
2: Now, this excellent book is full of really very forensic criticisms of The Sun King, the title itself of uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Do you ever feel in danger yourself? You've been every bit as critical as uh, Khashoggi was.
3: Yes, I mean, I've been in danger a long time ago. When I published my PhD uh, thesis in 1991, I I received threats that if, if I was going to publish it, I will be subjected to disciplinary action. And that came from the Saudi government before MBS. But after Khashoggi uh, was uh, murdered, uh, all Saudi exiles, and there is a growing community in London and in Washington everywhere, we became very, very troubled by how far the regime could uh, go to eliminate uh, uh, critical voices. But if if I'm going to live in fear, I should go back to Saudi Arabia. I cannot live abroad in fear because of my writing or what my writing would cause me. Um, Once you make that decision, then, you know, uh, you dismiss this moment of of fear. Um, And uh, I I do believe that I'm only writing words. And obviously, words are not appreciated in dictatorships. So... um, I will continue my academic career, my writing, and uh, uh, I, I deliberately take the side of the people the, who are in Saudi prisons, of the women who are detained simply for asking for certain rights that the whole, popul- the whole world enjoys. And uh, once you make that decision, I think you, you uh, become um, uh, a target.
2: Um. And you won't be accepting any invitations to um, conferences in Saudi Arabia with a private jet to take you there?
3: Well, absolutely not. I wouldn't even uh, go to the Saudi embassy in London or the consulate. I do remember as a student in Britain, my Saudi passport expired and I would not go uh, to Ah. the embassy or the consulate to renew my passport because I knew uh, and I had the awareness that governments can do nasty things in in their consulates or embassies because their sovereign territories belonging to them.
2: Well, well, quite right. Yeah, well, there's proof, isn't there? So um, we are almost running out of time, but time for a couple of quick questions. Oil, as we try to use less oil in the rest of the world, what effect is that going to have on Saudi Arabia, whose economy is, of course, already getting squeezed?
3: Yes, absolutely. There is a shift, and it is uh, in in world consumption, even without COVID. Uh, And for a country that is totally dependent on oil, uh, um, Mohammed bin Salman is trying to diversify, but it doesn't happen overnight. They had been used to uh, oil revenues, and uh, part of his plan uh, in vision 2030 is to uh, to increase the diversification of the economy and we shall see uh, it's uh, he he has been forced to draw on um, the national sovereign fund uh, to cover uh, exp- government expenditure and also borrowing so uh, that is going to uh, actually change the dynamics the political dynamics big be- be- between the ruling family and society. A society that has been used to a welfare state that is well-developed, housing, education, as scholarships abroad, and the, all that is going to stop.
2: We've got a few more questions I just wanted to get on to. There was one that was asked some time ago, actually. You, you know there've been some, there's been some talk that the custody of the... Uh, the Holy mosques in Jerusalem might be transferred to Saudi Arabia. At the moment, formally, it's, of course, in the hands of Jordan. Do you see anything in that? Any... I
3: doubt it, actually. Um, no, it, it will be neither. very, very difficult yeah. to do that. Yeah,
2: yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the jihadist extremists, al-Qaeda, to some extent ISIS. The question is, uh, the Saudi elite funded and supported al-Qaeda, and to some extent ISIS what would it take for us to see that dynamic re-emerging?
3: As I said earlier, you know, the Wahhabi tradition is still there and it is used at the moment selectively in the war on Yemen and uh, in sort of um, uh, suppressing any kind of political activism in the country. And as long as it's there, uh, you know, it can be reactivated. Um, If if we look just briefly at the history, the Wahhabi movement emerged in the 18th century and then the Ottoman Empire destroyed it at the beginning of the 19th century. But it was still there and it was revived by the al-Saud at the beginning of the 20th century with the help of the British government at the time. So it, it, it goes in cycles and I wouldn't be surprised if... It splinters into something else and erupts in different ways. You have to think of it as a totalitarian system and any totalitarian system is subject to being fractured and you have splinter group emerging because they argue about the interpretation of their doctrines and texts all the time. And the Jihadi tradition or the Al-Qaeda, they used aspect of the Wahhabi tradition interpreted in a different way. So they and the loyal Wahhabis only differ slightly about interpretation of their doctrine, because they have the same source, and and this we know, like totalitarian system, always break up and always have radical fringe movements, um, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it erupts again in in some time in the future.
2: Tell us how significant Saudi support was for Al Qaeda during its more prominent days, and of course it various affiliates very much still exist. And when I put these questions myself to, you know, important or unimportant people in Saudi Arabia, they say, well, look, we worked very hard to to stop these people. We eliminated them. It's absolutely wrong to say that uh, the Saudis um, expedited those particular movements in different parts, not just of the Middle East, but elsewhere. Where does the truth lie on that one?
3: Well, it's uh, there are historical records that uh, many historians, academics, including myself, had consulted. Um, it, the, uh, the whole idea of this uh, uh, global jihad, you go to Afghanistan first. And they thought that they could, it, it is the child of uh, many governments and not only the Saudi government. So it, it, Saudi Arabia provided the doctrine and the money the United States, Britain and other countries pushed for that uh, uh, project and Pakistan facilitated it on the ground. So uh, in order to defeat the Soviet Union, they thought radical Islam or Islam at the time could be an antidote to communism and it can mobilize Muslims around the globe uh, to go to Afghanistan and liberate it. And, and that was the, 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 uh, the Saudi government's active participation. You, I don't know many, how many people know that King Salman himself was uh, running a fund to help the jihadis to go to Afghanistan. And also they were given a reduction on Saudi airline to fly to Peshawar and to other cities in Pakistan and regroup with Osama bin Laden. So that, that phase is forgotten uh, as Saudi Arabia switched from a supporter of that uh, Afghan jihad to being a victim of of that jihad. Um, So it was easier for them to fall out with the Saudi leadership and turn against the Saudi leadership. And the Saudi leadership also started feeling the pressure. Between 2003 and 2008, Saudi Arabia witnessed the worst terrorism episode in its modern history because those Afghan Arabs, as they were called, returned to Saudi Arabia and started a terrorism campaign. So they actually tasted what they have been exporting. And it's, it's, it was a misguided policy on behalf of several governments to weaponize Islam in the fight against the Soviet Union. That weaponization, we are still living under the, the dark side of that misguided foreign policy.
2: Madawi, we are... We've finally run out of time. I'd like to thank you very much for taking part in what for me has been, and I'm sure for everybody else, an absolutely fascinating hour. I'd like to thank, of course, not just you, but the audience, Intelligence Squared. I'd also like to remind everybody watching here that you can get, well, not just one copy, you can order multiple copies of the book with the Intelligence Squared discount, and that is via the link in the chat tab at the right-hand side of, uh, of your screen. And, uh, you know, it's been really, really interesting. And by the way, um, guys, there are lots of books around at the moment about this particular man, but get this one. Start here. The others are good too, but this is the one that matters. This is where you begin. So thank you so much once again for uh, talking to us this evening.
3: Thank you.
0: What are you doing right now?